0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today are Dr. Stacey Pettyjohn and Becca Wasser of the Center for a New American Security. They are the co-authors of a two-part series that recently appeared on War on the Rocks. First... From Desert Storm to Inherent Resolve, the evolution of air power, and the second, from Forever Wars to Great Power Competition, lessons learned from Operation Inherent Resolve. We spoke before the bombing today in Kabul, and we'll have more for you on that development tomorrow on our Washington Roundtable. Here's our conversation. Stacy and Becca, thanks so very much for joining us.
1: Thanks Thank- for having us. Thanks so much for having us.
0: An absolute pleasure having you uh, both uh, back on. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And our naval coverage is sponsored by FinContieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our recent coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Becca, uh, start us off. Uh, on the broader lessons learned from inherent resolve there's a sense that some of the skills that we learned in Iraq and Afghanistan may hold us in good stead for example our networking big data you know integration you know unmanned uh, technologies on the other hand there's a sense that these lessons are very limited that US forces and coalition and allied forces were operating in a highly permissive environment i'm sure that from the standpoint of an infantryman it was less permissive but from the standpoint of air power this is not kind of a great power uh, game where there's going to be area denial, uh, heavy electromagnetic interference? What are the lessons learned at this point? And I understand that the two pieces could get a little bit entangled, but, but that's fine because we, you know we can, we can handle it. But give us your sense on what the key lessons are from this operation that we should be thinking of as we prepare for the future.
1: So I think that there's a number of lessons learned that we can pull out from Operation Inherent Resolve. You know, I think it's really important to situate, uh, you know, the use of air power against the Islamic State and sort of a broader evolution of how air power has been imp- applied. You know, in Operation Inherent Resolve, it really sort of perfected an approach that we had you know, started to get really good at in Afghanistan, which was sort of this limited risk, limited liability approach where, you know, we were able to use some advances in technology um, and advances in how we were able to uh, leverage some of our local partners to remove some of the risk to U.S. forces on the battlefield. And that's definitely what we ended up seeing quite a lot with Operation Inherent Resolve. But even with that being said, you know, a lot of times we tend to think of that conflict as, you know, there are only lessons learned against another non-state entity, or, you know, you can only learn something for another coin style operation. And that's not true. There's actually a lot that we can learn from Operation Inherent Resolve and, you know, before it, some of our efforts in Afghanistan uh, for a great power conflict. Uh, here, you know, I think there's sort of Three main buckets that we tend to that we highlighted in our uh, in our article, um, and that I think are incredibly important. You know, one was that you know deliberate targeting just it can't keep pace with sort of what modern warfare is going to be. And definitely uh, when you're you know working against a, another great power that's a little bit more technologically advanced and can move at this much faster rate. Um, also, you know, Operation Inherent Resolve was one of the first time that, you know, any of U.S. airmen had really had to deal with operating in any type of contested airspace. And in a great power conflict, we're going to see that even more. There are a lot of lessons learned. Uh, that we can glean about some of the US interactions with Russia in the air uh, from Operation Inherent Resolve that are really important for uh, potential conflict against Russia or China. Um, And then another big one is sort of the ways in which we can better look to integrate air and ground-based fires um, for future conflict. Um, and I think, you know, it's definitely going to become an even bigger issue if we don't try and start coming up with solutions now, particularly because a number of our joint warfighting concepts and operational concepts really hinge on that type of integration.
2: If if I could jump in real quickly, Var- Vago. Oh, of course, Stacey, go ahead. The the history nerd in me wants to expound upon what Becca started to tell you about, about how air power evolved and Inherent Resolve, because I think to many people, if you look at it, you think it's just Afghanistan again, where it's the light footprint strategy with uh, JTAX on the ground embedded with our allies, and we use precision firepower to support them. And to an extent, that's true. But I don't think it's fully appreciated the fact that the first few years of the operation, There were no JTACs embedded with our Iraqi or Syrian partners. They were farther back from the front lines in command posts. And um, they relied upon RPAs, um, unmanned aerial vehicles, to be flying ahead and use them to pipe real-time video back to these command posts, which would allow them to call in these airstrikes that were really close to uh, ground forces that were maneuvering and not to have uh, friendly fire incidents. So um, it, it was a pretty big step from what we had started to do in Afghanistan and, and really sort of perfected the light footprint approach.
0: Um, let me ask you about the broader uh, air power uh, lessons uh, as well. Um, Becca, you uh, alluded to the 72-hour air tasking order, sort of battle rhythm that we fall into, right? I mean, there's a tendency of wanting to plan this stuff out for deconfliction, especially on a coalition standpoint. That's not to say the air force is not, uh, and air forces are not uh, flexible and don't uh, roll with the punches or support any uh, last-minute changes to the plan, right? But I mean, you know, the the plan is is nothing. Planning is everything. So if you've looked at this, you you can have a degree of flexibility. But how is it we need to be thinking about the air power lessons, how air power uh, has evolved? Because as you guys rightfully point out, Inherent Resolve was different in that we were in proximity with Russians. There are Russian air defenses that are uh, set up. But then again, we're both operating by rules, right? We're trying not to interfere on their spaces. We're coordinating with them and vice versa. The Wagner Group action was one of the few things that happened when we repeatedly warned uh, the Russian side, don't send these guys in. If you do, we're going to take them out. And, and uh, if I recall uh, correctly, Cobra um, Harigian was the commander there. Uh, he's now the USAFE commander, and he took the decision to take them out, right? What are, what are the air power lessons, how it's evolved in the last 30 years, and what it tells us about where it is we need to go? to be effective because, again, it's 30 years of operating in, in remarkably overall permissive airspace, I suppose, with the exception of the Balkans and maybe the early part of the Libya operation and maybe the earliest part of the Syria operation as well.
2: So I'm going to jump in again, Vago, sorry. Um, and just to provide some framing and historical context, I think with air power, we really, you know, saw it emerge as a major factor with Desert Storm. And you had the large pre-planned airstrikes that preceded the ground invasion. Um, and the, the attack on of expelling Iraqi forces from Kuwait. And this has sort of become inculcated in airmen and in how the Air Force plans and expects war to go, where they can have these multiple days where they, they launched this massive air campaign. And it, it doesn't really seem likely that that is going to be possible in the future, because the speed of the battle and our adversary's ability to adapt is going to be such that um, strikes that are planned two or three days in advance aren't going to likely to be relevant or effective. Um, The battlefield is going to be much more dynamic and inherent resolve. We had a lot of problems there against ISIS because they could adapt um, faster than our targeting cycle. Um, uh, so they were, they were just speedier and that meant that before we could get targets approved and actually engage them, they move them around and they're going to be more and more mobile targets and targets that are well hidden. I think if you were to, in the unfortunate event that deterrence failed and we ended up in a war with China or Russia.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a huge, um, part of it, you know, thinking a little bit about how, adversaries that might have uh, more advanced capabilities, how it is that they can do, you know, how they can deceive Uh, the picture that the United States has and how it is that they can conceal some of their forces. And, you know, this kind of gets into a broader issue about what happens in an environment that's not only contested, because for so often we've gotten used to having air superiority. So what happens when you're trying to fight in a contested environment? But what also happens if you are operating in an environment where you have, uh, you know, purpose, you have adversaries that are purposely trying to get into your command and control networks and are trying to change the picture that you have, degrade your communications. You know, you're not going to have the ability to ask, you know, for authority from your commander. There's not going to be this opportunity to have, you know, Vago, as you referred to, this Eyeball to eyeball conversation with, you know, Cobra Herigian, where he's going to empower you. So if you actually don't have those types of communications, and in fact, you you might actually have an adversary that's purposely messing with your picture and with your communications, how is it that you empower you know, airmen or members of the joint force to be able to, you know, actually take the shot that they need to, particularly if it's in instances of self-defense. And this is an issue that we saw with Operation Inherent Resolve. And I think we're going to see it even more when we start to get to this, uh, you know, faster paced speed of warfare, as well as more advanced capabilities that, you know, great powers could bring to bear. Um, And they've, you know, definitely sort of As part of their own war fighting concepts, they've made it very clear that they're going to try and degrade our communications networks, they're going to try and mess with our picture, and we need to be prepared for that. So there's sort of um, perhaps a shift that needs to come both within training, but also the mentality that members of the joint force have when we start to think about how it is that we are going to train and fight in great power conflict.
0: Um, well, so uh, Stacy, let me bring you into that. I mean, sp- uh, spot on, Becca, right? Um, um, uh, Stacy, what is the progress that we're making? What are the kind of exercises and capabilities do we need to be developing to get us to this future point? You know, we heard from uh, John heighton Uh, just a few weeks ago about, you know, the key will be military units that can surface on a grid, take what they need from it, and then get off. Otherwise, they're going to be targeted. Um, I think that there is a tendency that we've seen this kind of capabilities demonstrated by the Russians in Ukraine, uh, which have been very, very powerful in terms of what they can do in the electromagnetic spectrum and then link it uh, to kinetic effects. And we can note, right, I mean, World War II was our last truly successful war, and that was run by a president who delegated authorities, whereas almost all the wars where we've done less well in tends to have decision making that gets hauled up to the White House, right? I mean, Lyndon Johnson is a great example. There was uh, bristling uh, under administration since, certainly at the Obama administration. Uh, and now, unfortunately, we're, we're seeing something to play out that, you know, the Biden administration may have made a certain degree of moves that, that maybe uh, were, were not uh, as, as fully endorsed, where, where the military shaped their advice and what they were doing to what the ultimate desires of their political masters were, which is, which is how it should be. What are the things that we need to be doing that we're not doing and capabilities we need to be developing that we may not be thinking of to, to get us to where we need to be?
2: You've hit on one of the key things, Vago, the fact that uh, the way that the U.S. military operates today is very centralized, and it's based on um, being able to have perfect real-time, often high-bandwidth communications with um, all other forces, and that, as Becca had noted, is is unlikely to be true in the future, Um, The devolution of authority, but also planning capabilities and the ability to execute operations at lower levels than exist today seems to be really, really important. And that's going to require um, figuring out how you can have the ability to plan airstrikes on your own, maybe at the squadron level or the wing level instead of at the air operations center level, and um, actually, exercising it, and becoming comfortable uh, with that skill set, and doing it in a more rapid fashion than occurs today. Um, in inherent resolve, there was an instancing, interesting development that occurred during the Battle of Mosul, where um, the ground force commander at the time, uh, General Martin, had uh, developed a what he called a deliberate dynamic targeting process that General Harrigian actually praised, um, and they basically used the army forces on the ground that were assisting the Iraqis and the Kurds at that point, their own intelligence assets to develop targets more quickly than the AOC could do. And this is an instance of seeing where um, authorities and the ability to execute independent airstrikes were devolved down, and it was necessary because the speed of the battle, they couldn't deliver fires um, at the rate and sort of volume that they really wanted to. So I I think that there's, it's not just a different mindset. There need to be different capabilities, and the U.S. military is going to have to accept that it's going to be operating a lot more inefficiently. Right now, we're optimized for efficiency, which is great if you are fighting um, lesser powers or operating in a permissive environment, but it's clear that that's not true going forward.
1: So I'll just quickly
2: go ahead. I'll
1: just quickly piggyback on that. You know, I think Stacey, you hit on something that's super interesting and that if you read all the literature on military innovation, you know, there's different forms, you know, you can have a top down approach and a bottom up approach. And it's actually been that throughout history, some of the most interesting sort of, uh, tactical almost military innovations have really emerged on the battlefield and I think the example that you cited is you know one thing that I can definitely see perhaps being uh you know integrated into future great power war you know I think it's important that we talk about how you know some various uh you know tactics and concepts evolved as well as some of the capabilities but again I want to hit back on sort of that mindset thing and it's more than just empowering uh airmen and members of the joint force to be able to make decisions at lower levels. I actually think that there needs to be an acknowledgement, perhaps, of some of the risk acceptance that the United States needs to take on. You know, I think the U.S., uh, particularly leadership as well as public, we've gotten really used to uh, being able to, you know, purposefully... Go forth with operations where we are trying to limit civilian casualties to the best of our ability. And that's something that, you know, airmen take great pride in. You know, some of the advances in weaponeering as well as targeting, and that's huge. But real war is messy, it's fast, and it's ugly. And if we're fighting against a great power, we're going to see operations that are messier, that are uglier. And I think there needs to be a little bit of an acknowledgement of that, that we're not going to be able to have perfect targeting at all times. We're not going to be able to have perfect weaponeering and that you can't have, you know, a, a civilian casualty value of zero in great power conflict and that's hard and it makes me sound terrible as i'm saying all of this but that's something that you know we need to acknowledge both as a society our leaders need to acknowledge that and accept that both our political and our military leaders and it also needs to be something that you know the joint force needs to be prepared for and something that frankly i don't think we really talk about nearly enough
0: um i uh, couldn't agree with you more uh that we are uh, driving to a degree of precision. And I think a lot of airmen would agree with you, uh, Becca, that a, uh, you know, so in, in general, Dave Deptula, obviously one of the architects of, uh, the 1991, uh, air war, um, and, uh, the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for space studies, you know, was, was urging for a much, uh, less, um, methodical approach, uh, to counter ISIS early on in the campaign saying, your, your desire to minimize unnecessary casualties was actually causing more lives, allowing ISIS to be more brutal. If you had moved more quickly, you could have destabilized them and shut them down a lot faster. That would have been more humane than sort of, you know, taking four years to methodically sort of march your way over there, as opposed to saying, hey, we have to destroy oil facilities because they make revenue off of them. And yes, uh, there are people who are going to die, uh, but it will be a lesser cost than it will be, for example, if a tyrannical or brutal uh, terror group is allowed to uh, persecute uh, the Yazidi minority or, or, or whatever it may, may be. Um, I want to ask uh, the um, cultural question about you know, dis- decision makers. What, effectively, you know, your, your decision is going to get cheered by a lot of people at the 05 level right? Who are, who are trying to execute and fat finger their way through this, for lack of a better word, without having 8,000 mile screwdrivers hitting them in the back of the head all the time, uh, sometimes in very undirected fashion. And decision makers want to be able to say, I was hands-on and I kept something bad from happening or, or what have you. What's, what's the change that decision makers will have to be? Because I think if you leave it to the fives and blow, they, they get it and they will execute it. Um what's what's the education needed at higher headquarters levels and decision makers who are just not going to want to take their hands off the the stick what kind of educate you know what kind of capability education change do we have to do at that level because they're the ones holding the screwdrivers
2: i think that it is going to be a shock and it's going to be a hard thing for people to accept um be, but that one of the best ways to potentially begin to expose senior leaders to this type of situation is through war games and exercises. Some of the ones that are focused more on uh, command and control, some of the command post exercises or the big ones that they do in theater and, you know, not allow the AOC to communicate with some of the forward units and allow them to um, uh, try to figure out what they're doing in that situation, because they can't Be waiting and expecting that they're going to have full motion video of every aspect of a battle in real time. So um, as a big proponent of war games and and exercises like that, I think that would be one way to begin to um, allow senior leaders to understand the magnitude of the challenge and why not preparing and not allowing junior officers to be ready to seize the initiative in that situation could be um, an absolutely colossal mistake.
0: Becca, did you have anything you wanted to add to that?
1: Nope, I'm good.
0: Uh, You guys are great at the uh, tag team, and by the way, Weaponeering, I, I think, has got to be the word of this uh, particular episode. Um, that, that and you used it twice, no less. So, so well done. Uh, you st- stuck the landing uh, on we're that. For
1: real. Uh, Come on, Bago. <laughs> Sorry, I said we're for real. We've done this. So. Hey,
0: I'm, I'm telling you, th- this. Well, no, but I mean, you're, you guys are getting to the heart of the problem, right? And. Um, you know, we were we were talking beforehand, and I and I know there there are many people who know me who've heard this this story, but I think that you know at the time when Jim Mattis was Allied Command Transformation and Joint Forces Commander, you know, I remember interviewing him, and this this has got to be, you know, 2008, 2009 uh, thereabouts, and you know he was talking about the fact that it takes 20 23 radio calls to get him off a fire base in Afghanistan, and and that we call and we talk. And, you know, ask permission, because we can and everybody's trying to cover their butt. And, you know, he was saying that when he was a junior officer, he would have gotten the he he wanted to get the three star off the base as fast as humanly possible, and would have made, you know, would have made the calls on his own in order to be able to do that. And it's actually good for the whole ecosystem, right? You're empowering people, you're, you're not micromanaging them. Uh, and and you can see that people will do great things, and they'll make mistakes occasionally, right? I mean, they'll they'll make bad mistakes, but everybody ideally learns uh, from them, and and perhaps makes uh, different mis- mistakes. Um,
1: Absolutely, and to and to that point, I mean, I think it, one of the things that emerged from the interviews that we did. So these these two articles they're based on a larger report um, that. Stacy and I did along with our former colleagues at RAND that was, you know, trying to provide um, an overarching operational history of Operation Inherent Resolve, as well as trying to identify some of the lessons learned uh, from it. And one of the interesting things that actually came out of our interviews was if you want to get close air support, it's not just as easy as calling it in, there's a form for that. So pretty much anything that occurs, there's a form for it that has to be tracked through a system in order to get air power to where it needs to go. Sometimes it can go, it can move quite quickly, but sometimes depending on what it is, it tends to move rather slowly. So, you know, there's um, there's both advantages to how we do business, but there's also some key disadvantages and ones that would very much, frankly, put the United States at a disadvantage against a more capable adversary that's moving in a much faster uh, manner.
0: Well, well, I mean, that, that's, that's true, right? But if you look at the mindset of the U.S. Air Force that's been in constant contact uh, since 1990, it's, it's, it's management of the grind and make sure that you have assets available to be able to deliver air power no matter what happens. And I I believe, um, and I'm not trying to let, uh, you know, pump too much sunshine over to the Air Force. I think the Air Force gets a lot of credit that even with an antiquated fleet, it is able to constantly generate that capacity to be used. And the ability for it to flex, I mean, friends of mine in Iraq and Afghanistan, You know, would note that the only time you ever got in trouble is if you left the wire without letting the Air Force know where you were going. Once you did, you were fine, and you didn't have to wait for air support. But if you left without letting them know, and you were suddenly calling the uh, Air Operations Center and just sort of being like, "Hey, I'm in contact here," you know, people would be going, "Well, where where the hell are you? Why why aren't you? You know, why aren't you on the ATO? Why aren't you on the plan somewhere Uh, so that we could we could cut um, uh, an an asset uh, for for you?" Um, let me let me just try to bring this uh, back around, uh, and and maybe uh, again, maybe a, a per- permissive lesson. I mean, the administration is is making uh, has made a great point in the, in this uh, week or so since the collapse of um, Kabul, almost two weeks. Um, to say that no nation in the, in the world could do this kind of evacuation, uh, obviously we've seen the deadline is going to be the 31st, uh, and, and certainly the Taliban saying no more people are going to be leaving. So that uh, would, would appear to curtail things, uh, somewhat. I mean, at, at this point, if nobody is shooting at you, I mean, I don't want to be discharitable to anybody because the folks at Air Mobility Command have been doing an extraordinary job as have their troops there. But I mean, United Airlines could also have, tried, have, have sort of pulled it off in a lot of, a lot of cases. I mean, is, is there any, any lesson that we can derive from this sort of last phase of the Afghanistan uh, operation uh, in terms of how quickly it collapsed? And the broader question is, can we project air power into the country, given our ability to strike the right target in such an um, intimate uh, you know, where, where, where the Taliban are intimately entwined with the local population, whether, and how we would use air power. I mean, how do you guys look at that, uh, as we, as we wrap up the program?
2: I think that it clearly shows, uh, the evacuation of, in, uh, Afghanistan shows, um, some of the unique and capabilities that the United States has at scale. No other country has a mobility force the size that we do. They don't have the tankers to conduct aerial refueling. And um, yes, uh, if the environment were entirely permissive, you could have civilian airliners go in there. But I think there's always a bit of concern that something could go wrong because, some uh, groups in Afghanistan do have things uh, like man portable air defenses and such. And C-17s have uh, a greater ability to maneuver. They, can, um, they have flares that come out and defensive measures so that they can actually land in a way uh, in a more threatening environment and do so in a way to minimize the risk to the aircraft and the people aboard it. Um, if it were, you know, for the second legs of the trip, taking farther out, if you're picking up um, those who have been evacuated in the Gulf or somewhere else, then, you know, it's, it's a totally permissive environment and civilian airlines could do it. But one of the unique things about the U.S. Air Force is that we have this big mobility force. And you see that Across time and most of our coalition operations, it was actually a big advantage to have partners and inherent resolve bring like their one tanker that they would have Singapore the Australians one or two. Um, that was a big capability boost or capacity boost because it allowed the U.S. to continue to support the ongoing operations in Afghanistan, which require a lot of aerial refueling. Um, in terms of projecting power back into Afghanistan right now in this environment, I think that would be difficult. We could obviously do it, but I don't—I haven't followed closely to know if the Taliban forces are moving around in a way that exposes themselves in mass or how intermingled they are with the population. Um, we could bring forces and drop bombs. We just want to make sure we're—we would be dropping them on the right people. And to what effect, one of the things that you saw in Inherent Resolve is that air power was really effective at blunting ISIS. It stopped its offensive and it it prevented them from making further gains, significant gains in Iraq um, once the United States decided to intervene in August 2014. Um, It wasn't able to dislodge them from territory that they held. And that's something where you do need some ground forces, whether it's partner or American, to help with that piece of it because air power might be able to pressure them um, and uh, pick off certain high value targets, but it's not able to actually dislodge forces that are holding territory.
0: Are you confident, either of you confident, that we're going to be able to project force and power as we need to in Afghanistan and a post-Taliban world. The Taliban says it is not going to host Al-Qaeda, but it is composed of radical groups and it has had an intimate relationship with Al-Qaeda and a lot of Al-Qaeda fighters have just been released. How do we do this if we do not have those air controllers on the ground? Because unfortunate incidents happened despite the fact that we had controllers on the ground and better reconnaissance. And it's not going to be clear whether we're going to have as good reconnaissance over the country, especially if Russia uh, and China get in there and they just deploy, for no other reason than to be churlish, a triple-digit SAM system outside Kabul or at Bagram Airport. Different ball game, right? So how how do we need to think about what's coming up and how we do this fighting the reconstitution of a terror group that will threaten the United States and its allies from Afghanistan?
1: So air power is best used when it's sort of tied to a broader set of objectives or a broader strategy. And here, you know, you can have coercive sort of one-off airstrikes that are trying to, uh, you know, stop the reconstitution of various groups. But, you know, again, making sure that things are sufficiently linked to a broader objective to you know, set what some of those key parameters and red lines are. That's going to be incredibly important. You know, that's sort of the theory of the case of why use air power. You know, I also think another thing that we're going to have to really be thinking about is sort of, you know, which assets we use and why. You know, ISR is already incredibly overstretched, particularly in the CENTCOM uh, area of operations, um, area of responsibility. Um, So, you know, something that we really need to think about is, you know, in order, how important is it for us to have more of an understanding of where various forces are on the ground in Afghanistan. Do we need to put more ISR assets toward that? And if so, where is this coming from? You know, at some point, it sort of becomes a trade across the COCOMs about where those assets are going to be drawn from. Um, And, you know, there's sort of, as you alluded to, there's multiple Uh, you know, really important tasks at hand. Afghanistan is one because it's related to sort of the key U.S. interest of uh, protection of the homeland, making sure that a terrorist safe haven doesn't reemerge there. Um, But, you know, we also need to keep an eye on China and Russia, which, you know, the last NDS cited as two of um, our biggest threats. So, you know, these are some of the decisions that need to be made um, and frankly made at some of the higher levels of decision-making.
0: Um, let me um, ask uh, Stacey uh, one last question, because we're, we're over time. Um, Stacy, how do you, as we prepare for this high end, how do we straddle, straddle sort of the Afghanistan scenario with the need to prep for the high end? And do we need a maneuver and presence force for air power as well, as some are arguing for the US Navy, that, that we will need sort of two different kinds of forces in order to try to do this? And some have argued the same for the land force as well, right? I mean, it's not exclusive to air and sea power.
2: It does seem like there may be an, a way to differentiate which capabilities are most useful in different situations, and that we wouldn't want to um, divest entirely of all capabilities that can provide great value in situations where you're facing terrorists or insurgents. Um, it, it's hard to know whether you can afford both forces and the cost of maintaining them, especially as for the Air Force, their fleet gets so much older. and In the Navy, the ships are aging out. So, um, it, but as you, I think when you look at Afghanistan going forward, um, it, it's one of those situations where when the U.S. has used air power and really coercive or punitive limited fashion across time, whether it was against Gaddafi or um, Saddam, it hasn't been hugely effective. And in this situation, I wouldn't be focusing on finding al Qaeda training camps, though, if I saw those, certainly that would be a, a viable target. I would actually make a much clearer and larger course of threat against the Taliban to say that we don't need to just hit the terrorists. We will go after things you value. And if you're going to control the state, you provide a larger set of targets that are easier to find. And that's one of the things that happened with ISIS as well, where they they in some ways uh, made themselves vulnerable because of their hybrid nature and the fact that they controlled territory and buildings and the Taliban will probably do so more.
0: Guys, thanks very much for this varsity level discussion. Absolutely solid gold. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Absolute pleasure having you both on and can't wait to bring you guys back on again uh, to help us think through other complex issues. Terrific work on your guys' part. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. We look forward to joining you again.